You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. All right, welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I will be your host, Abraham. And I'm Shane. And last time, if you are following up with us, we were discussing Montessori schools. And in that episode, we talked about the history of Montessori, some of the sort of philosophy about Montessori and how a lot of it is oriented toward this idea. This is schooling specifically, but uh, this idea that children have these innate curiosities. And so you want to set up an environment to allow them to sort of explore and use their intrinsic motivation to learn about things, essentially. And started by Maria Montessori. (laughs) Doing the the gesture for... The hand motion. There's a hand motion that goes along with that. Right. Sort of the godfather thing. That's essentially what we covered last time. So if you haven't listened to that, it'll be really useful for you to potentially go back and revisit that episode. Or maybe if you haven't listened to it, it would be a revisit. But go back and listen to to that episode. It sets a lot of the framework for what we're going to talk about today. And today we're talking more about Montessori with students with intellectual or neurological or developmental disabilities, such as autism spectrum disorders. And we'll also go into some of the studies in another philosophical approach to understanding how and when this model might work or might not. I think it'll be really interesting to kind of see because, you know, when we talk about Montessori being child driven and kind of talk about some of the other perspectives about that kind of clash, you know, with it, you'll find that there's so much overlap in the sense of like everything that it, on both sides is is very individual driven. So you'll kind of see it'll be interesting to see kind of how this goes as we talk about it. Yeah. And before we dive into that, Shane, you have a book coming out and I would love for you to spend a minute to promote that so people can learn more about what you've done. Yeah. So really excited about this. So I wrote a book over the last year where I just kind of chronicled the life of a traveling behavior analyst. And so every day I would write an entry every single day, no matter if I wanted to or not. And I would just kind of just go over the day. I would conceptualize some things. It is definitely a nonfiction and really raw. So uh, it's definitely kind of what I'm thinking about certain aspects. Like there, I do talk about school shootings. I do talk about like what it's like to have anxiety, what it's like to have imposter syndrome. I do talk about all that stuff. And then there's some fun stuff in there too. So it's written in the vein of, I guess, maybe Henry Rollins. So he's like my big like influence for me as far as writers go. Okay. So I try to keep it like nice and simple, include some behavior analytic language in it. And I think it was a lot of fun to write. So it's called Anxiety Report. And right now pre-orders are out, which is cool. So that is up on WND Press. That's our Instagram. Keeping it super low, super like low press, like low cost, like try to do low cost as much as we can. And everything is done independent. So it's like just a buddy of mine and I running this thing. So yeah, we've got that coming out. A hard copy release should be out in May. And even though there is a sort of limited run on this, if there's a huge demand and everybody in the planet decides they want to own a copy of the memoirs of Shane, (laughs) then don't worry about dwindling supplies. They'd be more than happy to print more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we were trying to keep it small press because one, we're an independent (laughs) WND press is very independent and we have no money. So it's one of those things where we don't have any backers and it's just done by a couple of us. And so we try to keep it really DIY as much as we could. So yeah, if we do run out of hard copies, we will make more for sure. <laughs> cool. So everyone should go out and check it out. I'm sure it'll be awesome. I haven't read it yet, but it's definitely on my list now. And when does it come out? 
So it'll probably be out the first week of May, depending on the printing company. So that's where we're at right now is like working with the printing company to get some timelines. Is there a website or anything people can go to learn more about this and how maybe to order it or anything? So I would say, you know, the best place to go right now and kind of the only place that we're pushing stuff is either on Facebook or on Instagram. It's just WND Press. W is in winter and is in Nile and D is in doctor. I don't know. I think that's those are the letters. Okay. Yeah. So WND Press is the is the the publishing company. So, and we have an Instagram account and we have a Facebook account that we kind of publish all the updates on. Is it Winter Nile Doctor Press? So funny enough, it's We're Not Dead Press. Okay. It's named after like one of our old bands. Got it. <laughs> you know, we struggled for a little bit because we were trying to figure out. Oh, should we name it this because there's like a WND? There's some other WND thing that's like kind of a problematic media company and we're like no we're just going to keep it like this and we'll just make sure that we clarify and put out good stuff to compete or wmd the weapon of mass destruction <laughs> all these books are wmds <laughs> contains so many stories <laughs> awesome well cool people can go check that out that'd be great and i'm sure if you have any questions you can reach out to you can contact us or you can reach out to shane but yeah go check out those the Facebook page and, and learn more about it if you're interested. How, how long is it about? It's about 200 pages. Okay. That's fairly easy to consume. Yeah. It's designed to be light reading and it's only 12 chapters. It's eight chapters a month. And just every day is there's an entry. Some of the entries are longer and shorter. And it's just the main thing is just that it's very raw. I had handwritten it all in a journal throughout the year. I didn't type it. And then I didn't edit anything. So like what I did is I, I typed out and, and formatted it exactly what like just exactly what I wrote during the year. When I was revisiting it, so it's it is not edited, it's not censored, it's nothing like that. So lots of swearing. There's so much swearing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, let's go ahead and transition back to our topic then. So we're talking about Montessori schools, and we're specifically going to address what benefits there may be inside of this model of Montessori schools with respect to individuals who might have a neurological, developmental, or other behavioral disability such as autism spectrum disorders. And there's a website, MontessoriForAutism.org. That's Montessori, the number four, and autism.org with uh, additional resources about what this might look like. So let's go ahead and describe then essentially what this website highlights in terms of what benefits there might be. And so they sort of talk about the idea of there being almost an IEP for each student. IEP, for those who don't know, stands for Individualized Education Plan. IEPs go into place when there are students who are usually have some kind of diagnosis, but definitely are, at whatever reason, are struggling a lot in schools. And these are legally required in a lot of situations, although I think parents can fight for them to have one put in place if they feel like their student needs additional support. And so inside of this Montessori model with respect to children with an autism diagnosis, they each get the sort of IEP. And the way this is structured is it's supposed to respect each student's own path of learning and follow sort of a child-directed timeline. And what that essentially is going to mean is that, again, you aren't necessarily pushing the child to any particular level of accomplishment, but sort of what they are already motivated to do, right? Just for our listeners that are outside of the United States, it's my understanding that IEP is a US-centric term uh, specific to the, the IDEA law. Oh, thank you. Yeah. In the United States, there's a law that does allow for children with special needs or a specific diagnosis who need accommodations to receive an individualized plan so that they can contact instruction. And it's specific to that law that was passed in, I don't know, the in early 90s? I don't remember. I remember learning about it. Now I forget when that actually went into law now, but it's been in for a while for sure. 
Yeah, we're not lawyers, so. <laughs> also, not super well versed on the history of specific laws, although <laughs> a lot of people in our field are. So it, it's yeah. not that there's no merit to it, just that's something you and I, I think, have studied specifically. No, no, no. I don't spend a lot of time in school. So part of this IEP kind of instructional design is going to be that there's not very much group instruction. So you're going to focus on the individual's own path of learning and kind of more individualized instruction rather than having any sort of group instruction, which might require that learner to to sit in a, in a group with other students where maybe they're not catching up or they're maybe not attending to the content in the same way. Right. And there's this idea here that a student is not left behind they don't get left behind a year, but instead they are given the gift of time. So sort of some euphemisms, I think, thrown in here to make it sound like it's all good. Sort of a wherever you are right now is exactly where you need to be. Very Zen idea. But again, like reframing the idea of, well, you still can't read a year later, but that means that you've just been given the gift of time, which is the opposite of true in this case because you've given <laughs> given the gift of time debt which is to say you've got more to make up and less time to do it in but that's part of the idea here i thought that was an interesting way to look at it it's like well you know every learner is gonna they're gonna be at a certain level individually right right like every learner has specific needs like for students that are in like ib classes or intensive like really intensive learning classes not everybody's gonna be at the same level across subjects so I don't know. I thought that was an interesting thing, given the gift of time. Right. Almost like their aging is suspended. <laughs> That's what happens. <laughs> like you said, you're not reading yet? Okay, well, you get an extra year on your life. That's really the gift of time. Sweet. All right. So uh, another characteristic they talk about is liberty within limits. And what that is, is they basically prepare the environment with each thing has a proper place and defined purpose. So what they try to do is they try to arrange the environment in a way that learning does still occur, but there are still limits to what the student can access, maybe stimuli that they can grab and hold on to, or maybe that whatever is in the environment is fairly limited. So they have the freedom to access whatever they need to, given the choices that are allowed to them in the classroom. Yeah, it's sort of the idea here of let's point you in the right direction and hope that you do the thing that we want you to do. And so like, we're going to try and set it up so you go around interacting with things in a particular way because they're available to do that and they're set up to allow that and that you do so without any real guidance or direct sort of push from from the adults in that situation. And again, like there's some, a lot of, I guess, overlap in how we might talk about how you would want to approach education. And this is one where like the ideas are somewhat similar. And we will actually, at the end of this episode, we will do more of a compare contrast sort of idea with the model that we would tend to embrace and what you see here. So again, it's not totally inappropriate. It's just that that is the idea here is that there's just a sort of setup. Now, one important thing is that there's not a lot of specific guidance in terms of what that setup should be. And so the decisions that are made with respect to how do we arrange this sort of environment for a student to go in and select the things they are going to work on, those decisions seem like they're still kind of arbitrary and that there's not a very structured, this is how it's not individualized to what the student needs. It's not individual. It's also not structured and like this is how you decide what kind of things to put there. Just sort of here is a grab bag of things that we have tried and go ahead and put this in your classroom if you want to, if you think this sounds fun. Again, I think the breakdown there is for each student, they're going to need specific things. And so a sort of a template boilerplate approach may not be that, that effective for a lot of students, especially their students who 
have a diagnosis of some kind and need very specific supports that are unique to where they are at. So, I mean, you might think of this idea, this concept of sort of this open world where you have a bit of structure that hopefully things will go in a particular way. That might be cool to get an idea of just if you throw them in a situation, what are their incoming skills and just see what they can do. I don't know how well that would work for a curriculum throughout. Like that might be an okay way to do assessment, but not particularly useful for actually developing new skills. Yeah, especially if you work with learners like that have very rigid preferences or rigid routines, then they're probably not going to access those other things, even with like a gentle guidance, right? Right. Another point about this is that each student chooses where and with whom and for how long they want to work. So that's an interesting perspective on that, because I don't know if you've spent any time with children, but most of them don't really prefer to do (laughs) worksheets or things like that. I think of like, even there are some adults that are like, okay, so if I could choose how long I work, it would be none. Yeah. If I could choose with whom, it would probably also be with none. And where, it would be in my office where there's nobody. So, you know, it's one of those things. If I could, if I had the ultimate choice, that's probably what I would look at. Right. Very much so. Yeah. So there's essentially this idea of freedom to move around and just kind of do things. And that the sort of hypothesis is that this, this will reduce hyperactivity that you might see in some of these populations. And it might allow for generalization of those acquired skills because they will move to these variable activities where they can then apply some of the things that they've been working on. And that's not, you know, totally inaccurate. I think there's there's a bunch of questions to ask inside of this in terms of what do you do if you get no behavior out of the kid, if the kid's not doing anything in that environment. And is that approach to that like, oh, well, that's your choice too. You can just sit here and do nothing. That's fine. Or is there some way of building in, okay, we need to get some kind of incentive system in place or some kind of motivation to try and get them actually engaging with the task? So those are some questions I think to have. But one thing they do use a lot of the time are these visual schedules and routines to help with facilitating transitions across these various activities. And that is something that we also, again, like we'll get to this overlaps thing, but that is something that makes a lot of sense and that we often prescribe when we're doing, at least in my experience, and working in academic settings is to is having these visual systems and especially for learners who need specific support like those who might have some kind of diagnosis of providing pictures that are something where they might even like as they do an activity take the picture down or just something very visual they can easily read and understand what to do to facilitate their schedule yeah it's super helpful i mean i prescribed that too and it's one of those things where for learners who have a hard time following a schedule they can actually help create a schedule too like you know when i've used these it's been like a flexible schedule where it's like okay here are the things that you have to do today here's where lunch is but in the meantime you can work on all these things and arrange your schedule how you want to as long as we complete all these things right yeah and that that goes right back to this idea that where there's overlap with these two approaches that we're going to describe is giving someone the freedom to choose as much as possible is often a thing that we want to do. And so it's sort of like there are things that have to get done, but they don't necessarily have to be done in any particular order. So you can sort of choose how you'd like that to go and like have people make that choice. Absolutely. Is, you know, something that we'd agree with. Yeah. As I say, we do that in life as adults. Like I have to wash the dishes and do the laundry. Which one am I going to choose first? I don't have to do them in a particular order. Like they're mutually exclusive events, but I can do whichever one I want as long as they get done. Right. I was also thinking about the pictures used for like depicting routines and stuff. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but I feel like as we've come along 
in the world. <laughs> and that's a terrible way of saying that. But if you were to buy something where you need to assemble it, I'm pretty sure anymore there are no words. It's literally just pictures. And I think it's honestly like, first of all, you don't need to have a language for that. Anybody could sit down and, and be able to see the pieces of the thing they're assembling and not understand essentially how to put them together. But also, I think it lends validation to the idea of like, hey, we get this as creatures. And so yeah. like we can follow these things and it doesn't just have to be for the, these very specific situations with this population, but it kind of works for everybody. So lean into it. Yeah. I was to say, if you've ever built an Ikea shelf. Exactly. <laughs> like that's exactly It's a visual schedule, that's, except it's just a very specific order in which you have to do it. True. Yeah. You know, also too, like within this idea of liberty with limits is this idea of balance between structure and spontaneity. So they have some ground rules, they have some didactic materials and they kind of have this prepared environment. So they have like this setup, right? Where they've arranged the environment so that learning can occur on some level, but there is like some level of structure and spontaneity built into that. So that goes back to the idea of like, there's choices within that, but that's the liberty of movement, being able to kind of do the things that need to be done within that space. Well, and then I think very much in the same sort of vein of that is that this is intended to be mostly self-paced, which is that they work at their own pace, not according to a standardized timetable. And where that starts to get tricky is when you have a, a student who's coming up against like high school graduation and they can still barely, they barely have any skills because they maybe never selected those things. So do they just stay in school forever? You know, at what point do you, do you just say like, eh, they didn't really care about that. So it doesn't matter that they didn't learn them. And for some skills that might be true, but I think it's, you know, how far does this model let a student go being behind the expected performance level of certain skills before their specific intervention, you know, and, and what good does it do them if they are like, well, I've got to make up 12 grade levels now. Yeah. I mean, at what point is that a problem? Right. I mean, that's exactly what we're looking at is like self-paced is great. And there's a lot of like programs now, which are like even like master's level programs and higher education programs that are quote unquote self-paced where it's like, you have a week to do this stuff. You can do it whenever you want in the week, but you have a week to do it. Right. And it's like, that's cool. But as an instructor, I've seen way too many times that people are waiting until nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, the deadline's midnight, and they're asking questions about an assignment that they've had an entire week to do. Yeah. So, I mean, that becomes a problem just within a semi-structured environment. I can't imagine what it's looking like for an entire year. Right. Another part, too, that they talk about within that self-paced education characteristic is that they can spend extra time on weaknesses, so areas that maybe they need to, to strengthen, and that makes sense, but they end up avoiding extra time spent on skills they might already be good at, which to me is is a is a unique challenge because obviously I shouldn't have to spend too much time on a skill or like continue practicing something or overly practicing something I'm good at but I should still be contacting or engaging in with that material on some level so that I can see that I've maintained that I have retained that information so for example you know when I was in middle school I took a history class and we studied early American history and we talked about all these dates and we talked about all this information but once I got out of that class I stopped contacting it so now I'm 34 and I can't remember dates. I don't remember when idea was <laughs> passed, you know, like, right. I mean, that's a perfect example of something that's probably important and necessary for something, but it hasn't maintained. And that's because I'm not spending extra time on something that I was good at at one point in time. Right. Okay. So now the, the setup of the environment should include materials that have varying levels of difficulty and complexity. And that actually is something that you often will see in a normal sort of typical school anyway. 
but it can be modified so that it's not just a single static level of performance. It can get increasingly difficult to to build in that challenge, assuming that they choose that challenge. I think about like any individual that looks at what is a path of least resistance, right? Right, like oh that thing's easy, I can still get a task done and it be the easiest thing possible. And so they may never contact that thing that's more complex or more difficult. Mm-hmm. All right. So still within that idea of kind of how Montessori schools are arranged for individuals with autism, another part of this is another characteristic that they talk about is this idea of individualized or small group instruction. So what ends up happening here, students with ASD seem to learn better in a one-on-one or small groups compared to large group formal instruction. Now, this is from the website. This isn't citing any specific research. So, so just to kind of keep everybody framed in that. Right. But they do kind of focus on this idea of like either one-on-one individual instruction or small group instruction as part of the instruction delivery process. And that being said, I think that generally speaking, there is a lot of benefit in doing one-on-one instruction for any setting, for any type of person, or at least small group. So, you know, up to maybe five or six students per teacher. Our our system wouldn't absolutely could not afford to do that in the United States. You know, as much bang for your buck as possible means as many bodies and chairs for a single instructor as possible is a financially efficient way to do it. But there is a lot of merit to the idea of doing really small groups to one-on-one for teaching. And of course, when they're doing teaching, they do use didactic and multisensory tools to help back up so that you've got is often described as multiple modalities or multiple presentation types for learners for whom they can access things that are visual to correspond to things that they heard. So it's not just auditory, not just visual, not just kinesthetic, but that sort of blends those things together. And this is similar to what you would often see in, in many types of intervention too. So again, like this, there is overlap with other evidence-based practices as well. Another part of the, one of the characteristics they do note, mention, I should say, is that there's some academic content and life skills where they come together, right? So they, they take that academic content, that learning content, they tie it together with some kind of life skill as opposed to following a strict curriculum. So like, I don't know about you, but I remember kind of taking some statistics classes and not really finding any utility in it when I was in school. Had there been some kind of like life utility to it, I probably would have retained it a little bit better. And so so one thing that they do as part of this is they tie those things, academic and life skills together to kind of help foster that learning. Cool. And I think there's plenty of merit to think about in terms of what those focusing on those types of skills that can be awesome. You know, I think there has been a huge emphasis on the sort of know everything about everything approach. And that's just not practical for a lot of people, a lot of those things that they won't ever use. But there are certain foundational skills that are expected to be known sort of across the board. And I also find that generally the more comprehensive and well-rounded your training and education is, the better prepared you are to just sort of deal with the world as it comes at you. And so there's not necessarily, I don't think that it makes sense to just push this idea that everybody needs to have this certain amount of education in a certain way, because for some people that just doesn't make sense for them, you know? And I, so I don't want to disparage people for whom like they don't necessarily pursue higher education or, or things like that. But I also want to point out that again, just coming back to the the more well-prepared you are to deal with sort of life skills, things that are, you know, impar- that are boring but important, being good at those is valuable. You know, this is how you self-manage your finances, how you manage your time, how you have developed sort of uh, self-regulating skills and that sort of stuff. That's all useful for independence. And it's not necessarily something that 
a lot of those things you just have to sit down and just do because you just have to be here and you have to know how to do it. So anyway, the idea here is that this is supposed to foster independence and choice making ability because they've given so much freedoms to sort of choose. And in, in some ways, I've definitely seen that that's the case. And I'll, I'll go into some of my own sort of stories about this in a moment. And so what that might mean here is that there's sort of a narrow field of options in terms of what might make sense for someone to choose because of where their interests are, rather than sort of keeping a really broad field of options can be a little bit overwhelming for people. I always go back to the idea of Netflix. Yeah. In our episode on option paralysis, like, you know, when we talk about that, it's like the sheer amount of choice right. can be challenging. Another characteristic they talk about, too, is this idea of mixed age classrooms, which I, I do like this idea. Right. Same. They essentially rely on older students as mentors for younger students. Now, I think having older students as mentors is a different thing than having, say, people of different ages or mixed ages who are at the same skill level or academic level. Like, I think that makes more sense than saying like having, I think it's good to have students as mentors and teachers. Cause you do kind of, you can learn from teaching somebody else something. Right. But there are actually a lot of benefits to having mixed age classrooms more than just that learner being on a certain level. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's also an emphasis here on personal well-being, So promoting this, going back to this idea of independence and responsibility and this is anything from just sort of being trusted to go to the bathroom and come back and also up to things like taking care of an animal, like a classroom pet, that sort of thing. So there is the intention that that's built in, although I don't I don't know exactly how well structured that that part of it is. Yeah, I don't I haven't really seen anything about how like intensely managed that is at all. So, right. And then finally, the one thing to talk about is this idea of integrated studies and independent exploration. So the learner or the student can deviate from that standardized curriculum, which I thought was interesting that they were talking about a standardized curriculum when there wasn't a standardized curriculum. Yeah. But deviating from that and they can explore their own interests. So like, for example, if you are somebody who is interested in, they talk about maybe you're perseverative about trains. You can actually take the idea of trains and turn it into math, mechanics, history, vocabulary. There's a lot of different subjects within that overarching subject. I think about playing guitar and just the um, the sheer amount of knowledge you have to have to play guitar and understand electronics and acoustics and sound engineering and just all the stuff that goes along with songwriting, music theory, all the stuff that happens to go in with playing guitar is it's pretty expansive. Right, exactly. And so yeah, there are those just talking about these populations of individuals who have a diagnosis such as autism. And one thing that you commonly see is very narrow and very specific interests. So like I knew a individual who had an autism diagnosis who knew every single thing there was to know about every U.S. president in history and like when and where they were born and how old they were when they died and the year that they died, their spouses and many of their accomplishments and stuff like that. And so that would be something where in this model they could pursue that to, to death. And while it's often like it's cool that they have something they're super interested in and are willing to like really focus on learning a lot about that, I think there is always sort of this balance of we also need to learn other things, you know, and like maybe we tie it back to the presidents if that's the thing they're interested. Another kid I worked with was super obsessed with lizards. So like maybe we relate these things to lizards and stuff like that. But allowing too much focus on that could take away time from other important academic things. So just, you know, how much vocabulary building is there really and, and some of that sort of thing. You know, how many opportunities are there to learn about specific mathematical and mechanical sort of formulas and stuff to apply? Just something to consider. Well, let's go ahead and dive into some of the evidence that has been done, some of the studies out there. So there is some evidence 
that some of the components are effective specific to early literacy in rich language context or sensorial foundation for math education. So there are some things that are there that we find that are effective for in this model, you know, maybe not the entire package, maybe not like the entire structure, but there are parts of it that work and work really well. So for example, 1975, Montessori children had higher mean scores on intelligence scales than traditional programs. So it's kind of an interesting factor to look at. Right. And then in 2006, in Science Magazine reported that when this program was strictly implemented, it fostered social and academic skills that were equal to or superior other comparison schools and gives a specific example of children in Milwaukee age 3 to 11 who attended Montessori schools outperformed their high school counterparts. Wow, that's interesting. All right. Yeah. So you're seeing that like there's not really a problem with this overall, right? Like that's what we're seeing that there's some benefit, I should say, more than anything. Right. So the original or the classic, quote unquote, Montessori model, which is absent of any of the conventional modifications or any of the modifications that we just talked about, checks kind of all the boxes and seems to be the best and likely to help students outperform their same age counterparts. So that's kind of something that is that's one of the arguments that's made about this is, is that the Montessori program, as it was originally designed, tends to outrank standard programs. And there's sort of an unfortunate wrinkle, I think, for the history of Montessori. In 1967, there was the U.S. Patent Trademark Trial and Appeal Board that ruled that the name Montessori had a sort of generic significance. And so essentially what that meant is that the name Montessori could be used loosely to describe methods even when they deviated from the methods that were specifically laid out in the Montessori model. And that set an unfortunate standard for Montessori practice because that definition became sort of loose and people could do a lot of different things that maybe didn't look like what was intended by the Montessori model. Oh, that sounds really familiar. (laughs) That sounds like behavior analysis in a nutshell. Yeah, I think actually that's such a, this has happened to so many fields where at scale, what happened was people were doing it very differently. So you might have had something that was done a particular way, and when it got scaled up really big without really specific quality control in place, and there might even be something where you had a third party come in and squash that quality, which seems to be what happened here with this appeal board. But when you scale up, then if you can't monitor and make sure that the model is being done with integrity, then it starts to fall apart because you get huge amounts of drift and the way the system's set up to be done. So if you can imagine, at the time that we're recording this, there is a huge thing about the COVID-19 coronavirus that's going around, and there's a shortage of testing kits and that sort of thing. And if they decided that, like, well, it doesn't really matter like how testing is done, like you can do any of these 12 different things or whatever, like as long as you have them spit in a cup or something, I don't know what the test consists of, but you know, if that's what it is, then you can run any, any kind of test. And it might be that like there are very specific procedures you have to follow to avoid getting false positives or false negatives by broadening it too much. And I'm not saying that that's what happened. I'm just trying to give a, a relevant current example in terms of by allowing this to be kind of anything, that means that you don't know what you're going to get and it might not work. We've covered a lot of information and it's probably worth going over a quick review of kind of the entire model and the entire process to kind of sum up. And then because we are going to talk about parallel fields or kind of comparable fields. And we want to kind of make sure that everybody is reoriented to that idea. Yeah. So just sort of a review of the system. One thing that is characteristic is that they really avoid competition between students. And in a way, I think that 
competition can go way overboard and it can be really inappropriate. And I generally try and avoid it for certain things. However, competition by itself is not inherently bad, especially if you have like a lot of opportunities to be successful and there's relatively low stakes. But this means that there's no competition. There are no system of, of intrinsic rewards, no reprimands or punishments. And the problem with no external motivators whatsoever is this is just not how the rest of the world works. And also, we know that that system does work. So, I mean, you don't go to work and not get paid and feel like, eh, I wasn't here for the money anyway. I mean, some people probably that's that's the case, but the vast majority of us in the world, we work because we need money. And so, like, that's an extrinsic reward that happens for putting in the time. Yeah. And we'll dive at some point into the whole intrinsic, extrinsic reward thing. But yeah. Yeah. I think that'll be, that'll be a fun episode. That'll be a good. One. Another characteristic that kind of falls within this Montessori education model is that the goal is to allow optimal development of intellectual, physical, emotional, and social skills. So overall, that's the overarching goal is like to kind of tackle all these different areas of the individual's learning. Right. Now, it's difficult to compare these two because the measure of success for Montessori is different from non-Montessori schools. And you can't, it's hard to compare then whether one would be better than the other. And so that kind of depends a little bit on what your priorities are. And again, I'll share at the end of this some of my stories of, of some of this, the schools. So it's just, it's, it's hard to really create a clear evaluation here. I mean, there was those couple of studies that showed that students outperformed on certain things monastery schools compared to sort of traditional schools so there is that one of the main characteristics there's two fundamental pieces of montessori we talked about learning materials and self-directed education so with learning materials this can incorporate a number of endless possibilities of endless skills from cleaning to maintaining something to functionally using items there's there's a lot of stuff that can be rolled up into learning materials and so often children will learn through movement and their own manipulation of things. A lot of the abstract concepts that are embedded as part of just sort of manipulating the world and having the freedom to explore and sort of, I guess, control how things go. Yeah. And, and you know, materials have like what they describe as a control of error, which alerts the child of mistakes. So thereby they can self-correct whatever is going on as opposed to getting direct feedback from the teacher. So whatever materials they're using allows them to self-correct within that. So there is some feedback there. And each piece of the material isolates just a single concept so that each can contain its own control of error. And that allows for the student to make self-corrections. And again, the idea here is that learning them proceeds from the concrete experience of that thing to abstraction of the concepts related to how that thing works. Ah, so like you're talking about generalization there a little bit. Yeah. All right. So self-directed engagement is the other part of that. The second part where they were talking about where teacher decisions based on what to teach, they're contingent on watching students. So what that means is they're watching the students in the classroom and the students kind of guide the teacher into whatever the next lesson or learning material might be. And as we said before, there's not really a specific timetable or schedule for how this this sort of works. So the student's going to do the self-selection of the kind of things that they want to engage in. And they're often going to repeat this. And there's this active engagement. There is the idea that they should be tidying up their, their space afterwards. But otherwise, they sort of have freedom from interruption. There's not necessarily grades. And again, emphasis on no external rewards or anything like that. Hmm. All right. Well, I mean, I like having extrinsic motivation yeah i like earning money i like having rewards rewards are cool so another part of this remember we talked about this a little bit earlier but this idea of peer-reviewed evaluation so there are a few longitudinal studies and no quality and randomized control 
trial. So it's hard to say whether or not this does work long term. We don't really have the studies to say that. And even when they match the, the students or the participants in Montessori procedures to control, there are so many confounding variables that it's difficult to say whether or not they were good control counterparts. Yeah. For example, parents who choose Montessori may have a unique demographic information or a unique demographic where they can afford the schools. Montessori charges fees. So higher SES demographics may influence that, too. There's just so many other variables that are built into that that it's really hard to parse that out. There's actually a decent amount of research that has evaluated certain educational practices, but only looked at it with really high SES sort of families. And so it's like, well, if you have all the resources and support in the world already, then this model works really well for students. And then they try and generalize that to low SES and communities where there are very few resources, very few supports, and expect it to just sort of work. And, you know, just thinking about this from both a research and a practical and even a financial perspective with respect to how the government's going to go about funding research on these things, you definitely want to have a good demonstration of the effectiveness of a particular model with in the places where it's going to be implemented. Yeah, absolutely. So another part of this within the peer-reviewed evaluations is this idea that it's hard to isolate which component of the Montessori program may have a positive impact and when it does. And if one is observed, because it's not standardized, it's so kind of go with the flowy that you miss you miss a little bit of what part is due to learning materials, what part is self-directed. It's, it's kind of hard to, to isolate those within any sort of study. It looks like that when research is done, given that there's a lot of variability across Montessori schools, the comparison is usually done with just a single school to other schools. And so it's hard to say whether if it only covers one school, how well does that represent how the Montessori model looks in other places? Part of this, of course, is the problem with how it's been forced to be defined, where you might get an enormous amount of drift away from the integrity of that model. But if you look at how other practices are evaluated and put into place, they usually cover data from many different sources, from many different sites, so that you have a good wide representation of the types of systems that are in place and the types of outcomes that you get from those systems, especially when they are supposed to be adhering to a particular framework by which services are implemented. So we're going to cover one study that kind of highlights what we're talking about here in this section. Now, within this study, they had a five-year-old that showed differences that were not found for all outcome measures. But some advantages for Montessori in letter word identification, phonological decoding ability, math skills, theory of mind, executive function. So they didn't find differences across all of those measures that they were looking at, but they did find some advantages in those other areas for a five-year-old in particular. And for 12-year-olds, there was significant differences for story writing and social skills. Now, several studies that look at comparisons or look at quote-unquote sleeper effects of students who had early Montessori education sometimes observe a correlation or grouped increase on one domain, but not all. So what they'll see is they'll see some benefits in a certain area, but not all the areas. And it's kind of hard to isolate if it was Montessori in particular or any number of other variables that can contribute over the lifetime of that learner. So in the, the summary of this study, when strictly implemented, Montessori, the Montessori model fostered social and academic skills that were equal to or superior to those fostered by a pool of other types of schools. So that was sort of what the, the takeaway was from that. And further studies that look at combined materials of traditional education with Montessori materials sprinkled into their model did not show as robust of an effect. All right. So the question is still like, what is the useful or the controlling variable for Montessori schools? Like what makes them successful? And that's kind of the challenge that we found with any of the studies that we have talked about here. 
Right. So let's then go ahead and describe the background that we are sort of coming from in terms of what that view would be on education and specifically how it compares to Montessori. And so we're going to describe this as the behaviorism informed sort of view of education. And the primary difference between the behaviorism view and Montessori is the precise and strict technology that's used in behavioral methods, right? Notably, when the procedures that can be replicated by any trained professional and that you'll find that no matter where you go, they'll be implemented almost the exact same way. And then there will therefore produce very similar results. So there's a high level of adherence to specific procedures in that model. And that's baked right into the education of that model because it's part of actually the framework philosophically of understanding how sort of learning happens. And so even that's one of the hallmark principles of that behaviorism approach. And Montessori sort of, and maybe this isn't the fault of the Montessori model itself, but because of that sort of that appeals board that changed what the definition was, but Montessori fails in that respect by allowing this wider deviation interpretation in the way that it's applied. And therefore, it makes it really difficult to pinpoint whether or not someone's even doing a Montessori approach right. And, and any given success story might be because there is a teacher in that situation who's really good at being a teacher. And it's not necessarily because the Montessori model is good or that they're implementing it right, but because they were just they were really good in that classroom. Or you might have just a really high-performing school with a similar sort of thing where you have really great professionals. And then in that case, was it the Montessori model? Maybe. We just don't know. You know, it maybe uh, the the model is idiot proof, and will, and when implemented with integrity, will succeed no matter the the person's level of training. And maybe the training makes all the difference in the world. I tend to lean toward the latter. Yeah, I love that you brought that up because that's an important component within like some social science studies where it's like they talk about how therapeutic alliance might be a critical variable to patient success. Right. And so, I mean, you talk about that with teachers, like. It could just be the teacher. It could be the teacher and student interactions because sometimes it could be a great teacher and just the student doesn't get along with that teacher or whatever. So there are so many of those other variables that are that are really hard to isolate within that. Now, on a positive note, the Montessori program and kind of the original design was using a task analysis method where they were able to kind of take those skills that were more complex and break them up into smaller tasks. They were doing that long before it was branded as task analyses, long before it was really kind of a formal process. So, and what they do with this task analysis, and I kind of mentioned this before, is when you look at a, a larger complex behavior, like say tying your shoes or washing your hands. Let's say washing your hands because that's relevant right now. Yes, that is. (laughs) (laughs) Washing your hands in itself is a complex behavior and it requires smaller behaviors within that to complete the entire larger, more complex behavior, right? So turning the water on, getting like creating the lather, rinsing your hands, all that stuff. And so what a task analysis does is it breaks into smaller steps, teaches one thing at a time, But they kind of mentioned, too, within the Montessori program, maintaining eye contact, being short with only clear and concise language when you're delivering that instruction. There are some really cool ways to do this, but they were using that process pretty early on. And now, again, this hasn't necessarily been researched or fully implemented in a way that this can be a major part or the the major curriculum for children with who require special supports, such as children with an autism diagnosis. And one source specifically said that they didn't think that the Montessori model could be fully incorporated into that child's sort of world. But they did suggest that potentially the Montessori method could be modified to work in a similar way, but be more supportive for that student. 
Something that they point out, though, is that some of the classical sort of textures and materials that are often used in a Montessori model might conflict with some of the sensitivities of learners with an autism diagnosis. But I think, generally speaking, the Montessori method does share some overlap and crossover with the behavior, the behavioral sort of model. And so here's sort of a compare and contrast of how those things sort of align. So how they're different. I'll go ahead and take this one on first. So where they're different is in the behavioral model versus the Montessori model. The behavior model is sort of data-driven, and the Montessori model is a lot more sort of child-driven and anecdotal observation and interpretation. Another way that they're different is that in the behavioral model, the intention is to specifically design curriculum and lessons to promote uh, generalization and application of those skills to a broader range of skills. And in the Montessori model, there's sort of an attempt to allow generalization to just sort of happen and that it's supposed to happen at the same time that it's acquired. So it's sort of like, well, if you just do it at everything across the board, then that will result in it. And so this is what we would generally call the train and hope approach of <laughs> <laughs> we will give you the things that you need and then hope that that results in the outcome that we want. Whereas in the behavioral model, it's very directly here is exactly the steps we need to take to ensure that this skill generalizes outside of the setting. I'm so glad you brought up train and hope. I was like, Stokes and Bear, Stokes and Bear. I could, that's all yeah. I could think of at the time. <laughs> As we continue through the differences between the behaviorism and the Montessori model, one of the t things that we talk about is the, the idea of demands. So in the behavioral model, it's not that necessarily more demands are placed. It's a, they're placed more consistently. So, you know, this idea of like, hey, I introduced an instruction. We follow through the instruction. You earn some kind of reward or something for that instruction and whatever that might look like, where in the Montessori model, noncompliance is nearly impossible because the student can kind of choose when and where and how and with whom learning occurs. So it's not necessarily noncompliance or even task avoidance, we'll say. I think that's a better term for it. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're not really avoiding any tasks. They're doing what they want to do because it's, it's child driven. Right. And the behavioral model, the environment is prepared specifically for the needs of whatever the child needs is working on. And in the Montessori model, the environment is prepared sort of just by peppering in a whole bunch of different potential stimulating materials that might be useful. So it's not as individualized. So I think just to summarize that, essentially on the behavioral side, you have structured individualized curriculum materials. And on the Montessori side, you sort of have a hodgepodge of potentially useful materials. Right. And to kind of expound upon that within the behaviorism model, one thing that we do try to, to or one thing that behaviorists try to do in that type of setting is this idea of using some kind of strict technological application, which means that it is an intervention or some kind of instruction that can be applied consistently across environments. Multiple people can do it. It follows the same types of steps. Whereas with the Montessori model, you don't really have that. It's a fairly loose definition of what the application looks like and what the instruction looks like. And so you don't get that standardization. And finally, as we talked about in the behavioral model, there is a system of rewards and punishments and, and rules about how to build in motivation and incentive. Whereas in the Montessori model, there are no rewards, punishments, systems, or rules around trying to build motivation, but instead assumes that there is intrinsic motivation to sit down and want to learn trigonometry. Just kidding. That's just <laughs> a specific example of the idea that people just want to sit down and like learn complicated stuff is, is not well-funded in my opinion, but yeah, I feel the majority of people would just avoid it. 
That being said, let's go ahead and talk about how there is similarity because there is quite a bit of overlap in some of the ideas and the procedures that you'd find in the behavioral model versus the Montessori model. And the first one is that both of these approaches are going to emphasize the use of multi-sensory, multi-modality presentation and didactic materials to try and deliver concepts and, and practice on those concepts. Yeah, and that's super helpful. So it's, it's cool to see kind of how that overlaps. Now, another one, too, is the idea of using a task analysis approach where they sequence whole skills step by step. So they kind of take a larger skill that is complex and they break it up into smaller instructions or smaller behaviors to be able to for the learner to kind of pick up those smaller behaviors towards that terminal behavior. They both share the ultimate goal of trying to prepare the individual for more complex environments where the classroom sort of serves as an analog practice ground and that this should then translate to broader application outside of that setting. That's a goal that they both share. How it's executed is one of the places that they differ, but that goal remains the same. Yeah. And another big similarity too that we want to talk about is this idea of offering choices and, and specifically from a narrowed option. Now, like in the Montessori program, it's not that somebody walks into a classroom and goes, oh, I can just do whatever I want. There are fairly limited choices and limited options within that. And so and you'll see the same thing kind of within the behaviorism approach where when instruction is delivered to a learner, it may be that, hey, do you want to work on this or this first and give them the opportunity to kind of choose from those narrowed options? Right. And then given the the fact that they both do have individualization in some way, the individualization and behavioral, the behavioral approach looks more like where your incoming skills and pinpointing levels to begin at and the individualization at the Montessori level is more like what kind of things are you interested in that we can sort of capitalize on the momentum that you have there. So there is some amount though of focusing on making the classroom experience individual to the person. Another one too is that in a behavioral approach you'll often see like mixed ages and that has more to do with performance level than anything. But there also is, I think, some overlap here in that it's very common to have children teach one another as part of their their learning as to be able to teach it. And so that is a, another thing that might, you might see in both of those models. And then finally, another common overlap here is that in the behavioral model versus this Montessori model, where they both share this idea of small group and often one-on-one -on -one instruction. And this, the point that you want to have only just a, a handful of students to a particular teacher, and that allows the teacher to really have a lot of time and care for each student. If you've got a divided te a teacher's attention 50 or 60 different ways, like that's, that's asking too much of them. And that's, it's unreasonable to expect that they can develop a lot of meaningful relationships where they can really help each student where they need to be helped. And if you only have the teacher's attention being split a couple of different ways, then they can really spend a lot of time working on just what those students need in the moment. So I think that this whole, like there's that efficiency thing financially of like throw as many kids in the classroom as possible, but that's just a very poor system. And I think one of the things that needs to happen in education reform. Oh, I agree. I agree. So now that we've talked about this idea between the different viewpoints of this and where they overlap, and I love that we're going to talk about this for a second because now that we know how much they overlap and that they do share the same ultimate goal, I love kind of talking about how they how people still have these opinions about this. So what you'll see is with people who work with autism spectrum disorder and, and individuals that are diagnosed with that, some of them will say that they view a Montessori environment as a chaotic place where children with autism would be lost and overstimulated, end quote, quote unquote. You know? So I think that's interesting because that might be the case for some classrooms or dependent on the teacher in that Montessori space. You know, that might not be every Montessori space. Right. 
And Montessori professionals, they often are not familiar with other types of interventions and ways of going about doing things. They may have never heard of the behavioral approach, but they often will view these other approaches that are done as being too data-driven rather than child-driven and being overly rigid. I don't know that I believe that anything can be too data-driven. <laughs> right? I, I, don't, I don't think there's an extreme at which that becomes inappropriate because data is so important. But that is an approach that you'll see. But it's funny to kind of hear that those are the two perspectives because the overarching goal is individualized treatment for kids who need it. And we kind of talked about those similarities briefly. So they, everybody wants the same thing. Just in, They're just trying to get there in a different way. Yeah. It's like the gold rush. So the real debate seems to be to what level of complexity a child with developmental disability can and should learn in and whether or not they would even benefit from that model or even for children who don't have any kind of diagnosis. So the Montessori view seems to allude to preparing the child for the world, which is to say free the child's potential and you'll transform him into the world is a quote we have here. (laughs) Whereas the behavioral approach uses controlled specific environments to teach individual and specific skills and slowly build in generalization into the curriculum and a gradual increase in the complexity. So the two seem to have the same end goal, but a sort of difference in the approach. And um, I have a couple of stories real quick to share about my experience with Montessori schools. Let's do it. So the first one is actually just someone that I know who does a lot of consultation with families and teachers and doesn't necessarily do intensive interventions or one-on-one, but a lot more of sort of training professionals to work with individuals that have a disability. And they reported one of the families that they were working with, the student was going to a Montessori school and the Montessori school at this one, again, this could be different at different places, but basically this kid didn't want to go and the school was like, well, it's his choice. And so just wouldn't go and had like zero rules about how kids could or should dress. And while I personally think that a lack of dress code, for the most part, is a good thing, because there was such a differentiation of incomes and backgrounds at the school, you had kids who were being made fun of for how they were dressed. There were kids who would who just didn't have the money to dress particularly fancy. And so there, there ended up being a little bit of conflict in that. And so they could kind of wear whatever, no matter how inappropriate it was for them to wear it. And they could kind of go whenever and they could just skip school whenever. And so hmm. there was so little structure in getting them there that like they weren't even in that environment. And I think, again, this might be a, a weakness in the integrity of that model. But that was one thing where we're sort of like, how do we like we're not at all on the same page with these teachers. We're trying to help this kid like learn stuff and participate in an academic environment. And we just have such fundamentally different views about how this is going to happen. It was hard to bridge that gap. That's a perfect example of how it can kind of go wrong, right? Like, I mean, I think I think that sounds definitely more like an issue with the integrity of the model than kind of like the overarching goal of the model. Sure. Do you have any specific examples for Montessori schools? No, I don't have any. Okay. I have one more, which is that where I work, we do primarily education. And a lot of that looks like remedial education. And so we're teaching a lot to individuals who are, have fallen behind often, not always, but often it's so they might come in for supplemental. They might come to work for remediation. They might come to even get ahead, but most of the time it's remediation. Anyway, there's a handful of kids who, when they come in, 
it's not necessarily a handful. There's a very specific profile is what I mean. It's just, it's, it's only kids who have gone to these Montessori schools, but there is a profile of student who might come in and on our assessments, cognitively, they show up rock stars, super good at like they're creative, they're inventive, they're abstract. They have uh, these really cool language skills where they just know how to think and reason through things. And they're really smart in that way. And they can't read or do basic math and do a lot of like the basic component skills that are necessary for succeeding in like college and even a job a lot of the time. And we see those profiles and with no other information about the student, we can almost always point to them and say Montessori school. (laughs) And we're right. Like 100% of the time because the kids will go to these schools and like with that free reign, they become like really creative, thoughtful kids who have no skills. Yeah. You know, they might be really good at like, I've seen them get really good at drawing and really good at music and all those things I think are really important, but they don't want to learn math. They don't want to learn how to read. They don't want to learn how to spell. And so they sit down to come in and it's like, they don't even have the vaguest concept of what zero means when you're trying to add or subtract it. And you've got to start that far back, you know, like a fourth grader who doesn't know how to count past 10. Right. And it's sort of like, and that's, that's obviously not as that's maybe more extreme than the way they always show up. But it is often the case that like when a kid comes in and we see that they blow away the cognitive test, but they have no other basic skills, we're like Montessori kid. And that's almost always true. It's a shame because it's, it's one of those things where it's like creativity and, and all that stuff and social skills are really cool, but that's going to prevent like those ba- the missing basic skills are going to prevent them from the other part of that quality of life that they're going to try to access later, which is holding down a job that can pay for their bills. Like they're going to, there's only so much you can do with being a super creative person. Yeah. And again, that's not to say I'm, I'm trying to throw Montessori schooling under the bus necessarily just to say like, that's something that I have seen in my own experience as what can be a drawback. And that, that could be that there's this weakened integrity of the model because of how it's defined. It could be that that's inherent to the model. Honestly, we wouldn't have any way of really knowing necessarily, but there's the, I've had that experience. And so I think that's actually a great time to segue to our main take-home points here. And one of the ones that I would actually say is just for myself, there's a lot of things in the Montessori model that make a lot of really good sense that seem like that has a lot to offer and potentially could be a really cool environment. And I think if combining that with structured academic learning and building in actual the reward system would make that just a force to be reckoned with because they do such a good job at creating an environment where a child can sort of try things individually that they're interested in and really capitalize on whatever motivations they come with to that situation. And that can be really powerful to get a lot of learning happening and to really capitalize on that moment, to have it be structured enough that they can learn component skills that will then generalize and be able to apply to larger composite skills is just really critical. As I say, that's pretty much my take home point too, is this idea that, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of merit in kind of the overarching spirit of the thing, right? Like I think that if you're talking about the Montessori school and kind of its overall purpose, it is to benefit these kids and these learners. Like that's the ultimate goal. Right. And it sounds like some of the things that they're doing, it is working in some level. So, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of kind of figuring out where those gaps are. And filling those gaps with something that's a little bit more effective, a little bit more structured, a little bit more, you know, scientifically savvy. Right. So 
you know, the Montessori education employs several fundamental beliefs that are comparable to that behavioral model that we talked about. And that that model is likely to really capitalize on what a parent wants and expects for their child. And who, of course, who wouldn't want to learn an environment that is specifically set up and to be tailored to the child's needs and prepared for that natural environment? And breaking down those skills into the individual skills at that component level and incorporating direct instruction, a Montessori model can operate in a very similar way to what behaviorism or the behavioral approach might look like. However, thinking about this from what the child's behavior is going to be, if it's too unrestricted, then it does run the risk of not maintaining all the way through into adulthood and not really providing the skills necessary for some of the the boring life stuff that you just have to be able to do. And when further societal expectations and opportunities will be placed on the child, will they be able to meet those expectations, regardless from which developmental population they originated? And so finding sort of the balance of exploration and then specific direct instruction, little d, little i, might be an answer. But just one thing that we've seen is that the behavioral approach does seem to apply a lot of these characteristics and and is also very well empirically supported in its procedures. Yeah. One of the last things we want to kind of say is there's a quote from nature.com. And so this quote, it goes like this. National and regional educational systems are beset by regular swings of the pendulum, for example, towards and away from phonics and towards and away from children working individually. This means that elements of the Montessori method will sometimes be in vogue and sometimes not. And that is, I'm sorry, end quote at sometimes not. And that's kind of the overarching theme here is that, you know, the because there's not a standardized process by which the Montessori model operates and there's just a general spirit, what will end up happening is sometimes things will work, sometimes will be things will be implemented and sometimes they won't. So it's going to kind of ebb and flow based on cultural need and kind of what's like cool in the moment. Cool. Before we go into our recommendations, I just want to comment on there was some discussion happening on the YouTube video that got posted for the sensory integration therapy episode that we recorded a while back. And the concern that was raised was, okay, so we don't have a lot of evidence for sensory processing disorder. How do we talk about that with our clients who really believe that that's what they have? And I thought that was a really great question. I thought that someone also fielded that question fairly well in the comments, but I just wanted to weigh in and suggest for other people who maybe had that same question in terms of what do we do when we're working with people and they say that they have a sensory processing disorder? And I agreed a lot with what the second commenter said in response to that. And what I was going to say anyway is that I think that there's no point in trying to discredit that for them and saying, oh, well, you don't really have sensory processing disorder. That's not a thing. That's just not useful, really. I think the approach to to take to this is to simply say something to the effect of like, okay, that might be the case right now. That diagnosis doesn't tell me what to do about it. It doesn't inform an intervention. It's, you know, and so like we, we don't have a clear way of monitoring it to determine whether or not we're making a huge difference. We don't have anything to really measure. So absolutely, there might be sensory processing difficulties. That's probably not going to change the approach we take in trying to deliver these services because it seems to work regardless of that as a variable and we don't have a way of measuring it even if there was something specific because we don't it's not it doesn't seem to be a really clear what it is i think that's sort of how i would go about framing it is like it's just not we don't know you know we don't know what to call it we don't know how to think about measuring it and so like whether or not that's a real thing 
is not the discussion that's really worth having with those people is just sort of say, okay, I understand that that, that is uh, the diagnosis you've been given that probably won't change our treatment. And uh, it doesn't really help inform what we would do differently or how we measure that outcome. And so, and maybe I'm not even saying that as diplomatically as you'd want to say it, but essentially I'm thinking about when I've had to meet with parents and they come to me with things like that and say, and I just say like something to that effect of, we're going to proceed with the information that we have and do our best and we'll change our our approach if it's not working like we're going to watch the data and we're going to make you know we're going to do everything we can to make this work for your kid and so you know they have this diagnosis and I'm like okay we'll take that into consideration it's probably not going to change anything specific that we do at an individual level because there is no prescription following that diagnosis in terms of what to do yeah, I mean, I would say the same thing. I mean, it's just it's just a matter of having the conversation. It's like that. It's great that you have the diagnosis or or whatever. I, I see that you have the diagnosis, but let's see what works. Let's see what's helping this person because what are they doing? That's the problem, right? You know, that ultimately is is I think the thing is like we can on this podcast platform take a lot of pot shots at pseudoscience and stuff like that. And I think it is worth pointing out for those people who deal with this in everyday practice that honestly isn't worth the fight. It's not worth having that battle with people because you just alienate them and press and push them away. And that that doesn't further the conversation in a way that ends up being useful. So there's no point in trying to invalidate someone's experience of what they might think or might be going on there. The point is just what can we do for this person in the situation? Exactly. And yeah. And if you think that you have a sensory processing disorder, I'm like, okay, what do we do? You know, what, what are we going to do to really help in this situation? You know, right now what I'm seeing is that we struggle with this particular skill. Let's work on that skill. Yeah. Cool. Exactly. Nailed it. All right. Some recommendations. Recommendations. Okay. So last time I recommended a TV show, this time I'm recommending a series of books that is being turned into a TV show. But this is my absolute favorite fantasy series. And I've gotten a lot of flack from this from people. And I will admit <laughs> there are a lot of fantastic fantasy series that I've heard about that I've heard that they're fantastic that I haven't yet read. And I'd like to go through and pick them up. And there are so many good ones. Like it's hard to even pick a favorite. But my favorite is the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. The last three books were finished by Brandon Sanderson after Robert Jordan passed away. I believe there's 14 books in total, if I'm remembering correctly. I love the universe. I love the magic system. I love, it's a fantasy series. I love the Wheel of Time series. It's my absolute favorite. I'm really looking forward to the TV show. I hope it does not get botched. I don't think it will, but I've seen things go poorly before. I'm a skeptic because of the Dark Tower movie. Like, it's this, I'm just like, oh, yeah, oof. exactly. So, like, they've done so well with so many other book franchises and properties and some movies. And then the Dark Tower happened, and you're like, oh, you can still really epically screw this up. Okay, got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's very easy. Yeah. It's very easy. Even with a great cast. Oh, such a good cast. Up. I thought Idris Elba was such a good cast. Oh. Such a good choice for that role. I was like, oh my God, he's going to crush it. And like, I thought he was fine. But man, that story was a mess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> so not recommending the Dark Tower. Recommend the Wheel of Time. Not the Dark Tower, the movie. The book's good. Yeah, you're good. The movie, not right. Good. Oh yes, yeah. Good call. the The books are very good. <laughs> the movie, 
You don't need it. All right, so my recommendation is a movie. I am very late to the game on this one, but had just finally sat down to watch it because my daughter's been really into horror movies lately. And so we sat down last night and watched Cabin in the Woods. I love that movie. I love watching my daughter's reaction to anything and just watching her kind of ask the question of what the heck is going on the entire time (laughs) was probably my favorite thing. If you've not seen it, you know, I would say it's equal parts horror and comedy. Definitely has like this very strange bent to it that you're not really expecting. And the cast is really great. Like they have these really cool key players in it that you're like, why are they in this movie? Yeah. But it's done really well. And it's funny to think that there's not really a villain, but there is kind of a villain. I don't know. It's just it's just a really interesting play on like those old horror movie tropes. Right. So it's definitely worth a watch. I would so second that recommendation. I love that movie. I love it. It is funny, but I think they also it's sort of a parody of horror movies in a way. Sort of like, did you see the movie Drag Me to Hell? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's another one where like that was a really fun movie that also leaned heavily into a bunch of tropes to just sort of play around with it. That one was less comedy than Cabin in the Woods. But like Evil Dead is another one where it's like, yes, just over the top, ridiculous. Like the story is very clearly ridiculous, but like it's a fun watch and you just get invested in the characters and like the story. Like cause it's an interesting story. Yeah, that's the it's whole an interesting point. take on it. Like, let's have fun with this. Yeah, exactly. So cool. All right. Well. This has been a long one. Thank you so much for listening. If you were following with us the entire time, thank you for recording with me today, Shane. For sure. If you'd like to learn more about this or any of our other episodes, you can go to our website, www.wwdpodcast.com. Info at the WWD thing is our uh, email if you'd like to reach out to us. We'd love to hear about your experience with Montessori schools. If you are, especially from the behavioral approach and you've worked in Montessori schools, but really anybody who has anything to say about it, if you think that we're wrong and would like to correct us, we'd be perfectly fine to hear that too. Reach out to us on social media or on email. And if you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to this. Tell a friend about us. And of course, it helps to subscribe as well. And then you can join us on Patreon and get access to videos of us recording and get access to uncut versions of episodes, bonus episodes, that sort of thing. I think that's all I've got. Anything from you? Nope, that's it. I think it sounds good. All right, perfect. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. We are out. See ya. You've been listening to Why We Do What We Do. Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcast or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.wwdpodcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. Your example is way better than mine. I was going to use butt implants as the example. (laughs) 
I would have loved to know how that got tied in. Maybe we'll save that as like a little bonus at the end. No, as I say, like think about this. Like when you talk about like the standard of practice, right? There is an effective butt implant surgery that works. And then when people start doing it and deviating from the norm, that's when you get rubber concrete pumped into your butt and then you get these infections and then your butt falls off. What have you been watching? I really hope that I remember when we published this to put hashtag butt implants. <laughs> See, that's why you bring me on here sometimes. It's like I'm the wild card. I have I just, I just no idea what's going to come out of my mouth. <laughs> that was so random. I mean, I, I like it. I think it was fun. It was just uh, and 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 like legitimately related. It was just so out of left field. <laughs> I am just surprised. Coronavirus butt implants. <laughs> I mean, yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs>